Thank you very much. Good evening. Now I see why I was invited here because Vice Chancellor had the autonomy. <laughs> when he invited me, I thought uh, it was a casual remark. I didn't realize that he meant it. <laughs> I was waiting for him to change his mind, but he didn't. And I'm here. And it's such, a, such an honor for me to be here to talk about the hurdles that we have gone through and the ideas that kind of pushed us forward to do things which looked impossible things, but we're happy that it worked. Vice Chancellor Dr. John Hood, members of the faculty, Distinguished ladies and gentlemen, my student friends. I'm very honored to be invited to deliver the Romanus Lecture at the famous Sheldonian Theater at Oxford. It is indeed a privilege for me to become a part of this great 100-year-old tradition at Oxford University. Thank you for inviting me. I have chosen today the title of my speech as A Poverty-Free World, When and How, because I believe that not only poverty is the most pressing issue of our time, I also believe at the same time that it is a problem that we have fully <coughs> the capacity to tackle and overcome within the first half of this century, if only we choose to do so. I'm a compulsive optimist as far as poverty is con concerned. I'm an optimist because I'm convinced that poverty is not as difficult or as complex an issue as we are constantly told it is. After all, poverty is about people. I've always said that the ingredients of ending poverty comes neatly packaged within each person. A human being is born in this world fully equipped not only to take care of him, himself or herself, but also endowed with the ability to enlarge the well-being of others in this planet. Why is it then that more than a billion people on this planet suffer through a lifetime of misery and indignity spending every moment of their lives looking for food for physical survival alone. And then poverty is not created by the poor people. Rather, it is created by the economic and social system that we have designed for the world. It is created by the institutions that we have built, the concepts that we have developed, and the policies that we have been pursuing, and the theoretical framework that we have created for us. In order to overcome poverty, we have to go back to the drawing board and redesign our concepts and institutions. A major institution that needs to be redesigned is a financial institution. 
There is something fundamentally wrong with an institution that leaves out more than half the population of the world because they are considered not creditworthy. With the crisis going on, probably the good question will be, who is not creditworthy? <laughs> this is what my work with Grameen Bank has been about, to design a banking, design a banking method which can deliver the financial service to the people who are left out completely, particularly to the women, the most difficult to reach. When I first started out and gave the first $27 to 42 people in that first village next to the university campus where I was teaching, I never imagined that I would one day create a bank, let alone that our efforts would grow to become a global <coughs> movement to bring credit and financial services to the poor people. When I got started, I was trying to solve a local problem just within a village. I was shocked to learn that poor people are shackled because they do not have access to even a few dollars to invest or grow a tiny income generating activity. That poor people were at the mercy of loan sharks in the, in the village who lent to the poor at exorbitant rates and then forced them to sell their goods to them at a price arbitrarily decided by them. This, to me, was a kind of slavery. When I gave the first $27 to try to free them from the clutches of the loan sharks, I didn't know what would happen. Imagine my surprise when I saw the excitement that this created in them. It just, it just made me want to do more of it. This is what led me to create Grameen Bank, after a long series of little steps. Grameen Bank has grown to become a nationwide bank today. It has lent more than over seven billion US dollars today. And the number of borrowers, seven and a half million people, poor, very poor people. Our repayment rate is near 100%, 99% or very close. Our own internal survey showed that our members are steadily crossing the poverty line every year. With 64% of our borrowers who have been with Grameen Bank for more than five years have already crossed the poverty line. And now there are microcredit programs around the world in nearly every single country. Banks explain that poor people are not creditworthy. But the real question to ask is whether the banks are people-worthy. In the context of the total collapse of the financial system today, this question becomes more relevant and urgent. We're still in the midst of the worst financial crisis of the century. In Grameen Bank, there are no legal instruments between the lender and the borrower. No guarantees, no collateral. You can't get riskier than that. And yet, our money comes back while the prestigious banks all over the world are going down with all their intelligent paperwork, all their collateral, all the lawyers behind them, and the legal system to back them up with their documents. 
This contrast raises many questions in one's mind. In the last 50 years, capitalism has reigned supreme. Socialist economies have faded away and moved to capitalism. This has brought unprecedented wealth and prosperity to some countries and to some people. But billions are left out. In some places, the situation is getting worse for those who are left out. The financial crisis that has gripped the world, world economy illustrates the social failings of the existing capitalist system. It has been described in the media as casino capitalism or irresponsible capitalism. Credit markets were originally created to serve the human needs, to provide business people with capital to start or expand companies, and to enable families to buy homes. In return for these services, bankers and other lenders earned a reasonable profit. Everyone benefited. In recent years, however, the credit markets have been distorted by a relative handful of people and companies with a different goal in mind, to earn unrealistically high rates of return through clever feats of financial engineering. They repackaged mortgages and other loans into sophisticated instruments whose risk level and their characteristics are hidden. Then they sold and resold these instruments, earning a slice of profit on every transaction. All the while, investors eagerly bid up the prices, scrambling for unsustainable growth. And gambling that the underlying weakness of the system would never come to light. With the collapse of the housing market in the United States, the whole house of cards have come down. Millions of people around the world who had nothing, nothing wrong, who did nothing wrong, not, no, played no role in the crisis, are the ones who are suffering. And the worst effect, as usual, will be left, will be felt by the poor. As economies falter, as government budgets collapse, and as contributions to charities and NGOs dwindle, efforts to help the poor will diminish. With the slowing down of the economies everywhere, the poor will lose their jobs and income from self-employment. Bailout. The government bailout cannot be relied on as a solution to the market problems. In the long run, self-protection is possible only when market can ensure that it will not allow a crisis to develop in the first place. I suggest a mechanism to buy all potential toxic assets on a daily basis through a business created by the participation of all businesses which engage in highly speculative business and make high profits. I suggest that the market must be equipped with a strong mechanism to detect bubbles at the very initial stage and create an instantaneous reaction device to shoot it down. Every day the market must hunt down the potential toxic assets and these must be bought off by a company created for this purpose. Capitalization of this company may be made from requiring companies to buy a percentage of their gains made from highly speculative transactions at a progressive rate. 
Market must be developed as a self-correcting system. It cannot be left as a wild party of some profit-hungry people and organizations. I believe we can tackle some of these challenges within the free market system of capitalism, provided we design appropriate built-in mechanism to protect the system. Even if we can overcome the problem of financial crisis, we'll still be left with some fundamental questions about the effectiveness of capitalism in tackling many other unresolved problems. In my view, the theoretical frame of capital, framework of capitalism that is in practice today is a half-done structure. The theory of capitalism holds that the marketplace is only for those who are interested in making money, for the people who are interested in profit only. This interpretation of human being in the theory of economics treats people as one-dimensional beings, but people are multidimensional. While they have their selfish dimensions, at the same time, they also have their selfless dimensions. Capitalism and the marketplace that has grown around theory makes no room for the selfless dimensions of the people. If some of the self-sacrificing drives and motivations that exist in people could be brought into the business world to make impact on the problems that face the world, there would be few problems that could not be solved. Present structure of economic theory does not allow these dimensions of people to play out in the marketplace. I argue that given the opportunity, people will come into the marketplace to express their selfless urges by running special types of businesses. Let us call them social businesses, to make a change in the world. In the absence of such opportunity in the marketplace, people express their selfless, selflessness through charities. Charitable efforts have been with us always and they are noble, and they are needed. But we have, been, we have seen that business is able to in, innovate, to, to expand, to reach more and more people through the power of the free market. Imagine what we could have achieved if talented entrepreneurs and business executives around the world devoted themselves in ending, say, malnutrition without any intention of making money for themselves or for their investors. Corporate social responsibility is considered to be a part of the company policies these days. Corporate social responsibility usually means let us make money and then use part of the wealth to help society. This is an important development in the business world but this still does not let business people to express their selfless urges within the framework of the market. Just as an individual person who makes money in business then gives away a part of his income into charity, similarly, now a company, a legal person, does the same, makes money and gives part of it into charity. I'm proposing a different structure of the market itself. I'm proposing a second type of business to operate in the same market 
along with the existing kind of profit-maximizing business. I'm not opposed to the existing type of business, although I call for many improvements in this business, like many others do. I am proposing a new business in addition to the existing one. This new type of business I am calling social business because if for because it works for collective benefit of others. This is a business whose purpose is to address and solve social problems, not to make money for its investors. It is a non-loss, non-dividend company with a social goal. Investors can recoup their investment money. Be beyond that, there is no profits to be taken out as dividend by the investors. These profits remain with the company and are used to expand its outreach, improve the quality of the product or service it provides, or design methods to bring down the cost of the product or the service. If the efficiency, the competitiveness, and the dynamism of business could be harnessed to deal with the specific social problem, the world would be a much better place. The concept of social business crystallized in my mind through my experience of Grameen companies. Over the years, we have created a series of companies to address different problems faced by the poor people in Bangladesh. Whether it is a company to provide renewable energy, or a company to provide healthcare, or yet another company to provide information technology to the poor people, we were always motivated by the need to address the social need. We always designed them as profitable companies, but only to ensure its sustainability so that the product or the service could reach more and more poor people and, and on an ongoing basis. In all these cases, the social need was the only consideration. Making personal money was no consideration at all. That is how I realized that business could be built another way from the ground up around the specific social need without motive for personal gain. The idea of social business got boost when we launched a joint venture with Danone, a French company. Grameen has teamed up with Danone to bring nutritious fortified yogurt to the undernourished children of Bangladesh. The aim of this social business is to fill the nutritional gap in the diet of these children. We put all the micronutrients which are missing in the children, vitamin, iron, zinc, iodine, into this yogurt, and then sell it to the poor children. And the company remains self-sustaining. Beyond the investment capital, neither Jamin nor Danone will make any money from this venture. We have one plant operating in Bangladesh today. We hope to have 50 such plants throughout the country. We deliberately made them small plants so that we can avoid the cold chain and reduce the cost of production, make it cheaper for the poor people. We have built an eye care hospital on the social business principle. We have created a joint venture with another French company, Veolia, 
to deliver safe, safe drinking water in the villages of Bangladesh. Under the company, we are building a small water treatment plant in rural Bangladesh to bring clean water to about 100,000 villagers in an area where existing supply of water is highly arsenic contaminated. Millions of people in Bangladesh drink arsenic contaminated water, literally drink poison every day, and their children drink poison. We wish to sell the water at a very affordable price to the villagers to make the company sustainable, but no financial gain will come to Grameen or Veolia. Now more and more companies are coming forward to partner with us to set up new social businesses in many diverse areas, healthcare, renewable energy, and so on. We feel excited in creating a series of examples of social businesses, which hopefully will encourage others to join in. Some people are skeptical. Who will create these businesses? Who will run these businesses? I try to point out, to begin with, there is no dearth of philanthropists in the world. People give away billions of dollars. Imagine if those billions could be used in a social business way to help people. These billions could be recycled again and again if it is in social business. And the social impact could, could be all that much more powerful because it will be recycled again and again. Corporate social responsibility money of the companies could easily go into social businesses. Each company can create its own range of social businesses. Once the concept of social business is included in the economic theory, millions of people will come forward to invest in the social businesses because they all have those social dreams in their hearts. We'll need to create social stock markets to channel these funds to appropriate social businesses because the present stock market is, a, is all about making money. So we need a separate stock market or social stock market where people can go and make a difference in the world. The other idea where huge strides are being made is in the area of information technology. The advances being made are happening at, each, at such a rate that is difficult to keep, keep up. All manners of gadgets and devices are being created, making those that have come before obsolete in a very short period of time. Websites and online platforms are transforming the way we communicate, do business, or interact with each other. The world is truly getting smaller, but only for those who can afford the technology. And for those who are trained to use it, unless it is properly directed, the way these advances are taking place, it will go on to deepen the digital divide. I have been arguing for years that technology could play a very powerful role in closing the gaps between the rich and the poor in a way that other things cannot do. If we could channel some of the brilliant creativity and innovation into creating IT solutions to the problems of the poor, we would succeed much more quickly in our race to end poverty. From e-healthcare 
and mobile phone banking to online marketplaces to sell the products and services of the poor around the world, we are beginning to see what possibilities there are right now. The future of poverty, as I see it, will be decided by the technological devices and services that are designed a priority, a priority for poor people. These will be designed with their needs in mind rather than those created for well-off and adapted for the poor. We have the technology, but we have to transform it into a digital genie for the poor people. Digital devices could be something like Aladdin's lamp, so that the poor woman will touch the lamp and the digital <coughs> genie will come out and say, what can I do for you? <laughs> and the poor woman will tell, tell the genie that I need to sell these baskets. I can't find anybody. Say, don't worry, ma'am. I'll fix it up. <coughs> and digital genie can really do that job. We can design such devices. Today, it is possible. A broad range of technology has a fundamental role to play in the current global food crisis that we are seeing today. The poor countries like Bangladesh are facing the brunt of this crisis. The shortage of food will wreak havoc in the lives of the millions of the poor. As populations rise, their incomes and expectations rise, global demand for food will continue to rise steadily. We need new technological revolution in agriculture to ensure that we can have a much higher output of food grown on the finite amount of land that is available to us. With all the advances taking place today, there is no question that we can come up with breakthroughs in agricultural production in terms of both yield and quality. It is disheartening to see many of the world's poorest falling back towards poverty just when we thought the planet was ready for a big step forward. We had thought food shortages were a thing of the past, but now they are back again, not due to any lack of productive capacity on the part of the world's farmers, and certainly not due to lack of effort by the farmers themselves, but due to forces that could have been averted, the economic crisis and the world's failure to address the need to improve the agricultural technology to increase yields. We have to focus our attention at the global level to tackle this great new challenge to the world's poorest. We live in a world which is globalized, for better or worse. What we do in one part of the world has a direct impact on another. We are now connected and interdependent in an unprecedented way. This can be a good thing but this can be a bad thing too. Good waves spread quickly, so are the bad waves. Collapse of the financial system in the USA has immediately transmitted globally. The whole world now has to suffer for something which happened in USA. Wrongdoings of the rich world impacts on the lives of the poor people very heavily. Blunders of the North can make lives in the South unsustainable. The issue of climate change and how this will affect the Earth and how human beings will continue to survive on this planet is a good example. 
The world has many resources, but much of it non-renewable. We have to understand that the patterns of our consumption and the path to development that the world is taking could seriously endanger our future of the planet. The food crisis in part caused by the changes in the climatic patterns caused, scientists believe, due to global warming. Bangladesh is singled out very often as a country that will be most affected and most quickly by the effects of climatic change. As we all live in the same world, we have to understand that we all have to share this world with everybody else and also with the future generations. There has to be a new approach. Now to my young friends, it is to your generation, it is up to your generation that the compassionate and creative young generation to make a break with the past and create a new future. We recognize how all of us, wherever we are in the world, are connected by a common fate and destiny in the natural world that we share. We have started the new millennium with grand hopes for a new world. In 2000, the world pledged on one in one voice to achieve the Millennium Development Goals. The most important of those goals was the goal to reduce poverty by half by 2015. All the countries and the peoples of the world agreed to these goals. And the most, these goals, the most bold and the most noble of goals ever set for mankind. Bangladesh is an example of a country that has made tremendous progress towards millennium, achieving Millennium Development Goals. The poverty days has fallen from an estimated 74% in 1973 to 57% in 1991 to 49% in the year 2000 and to 40% in 2005. Though still too high, it continues to fall by around 2% each year, with each percentage point representing a significant improvement in the lives of the millions of Bangladeshis. The country is on the track to achieve the Millennium Development Goal of reducing poverty by half by 2015. Even more remarkably, Bangladeshi, Bangladesh's rapid economic growth has been accompanied by very little increase in inequality. The sharp drop in poverty is reflected in the changes in economic growth, employment patterns, and the structure of the economy. Growth has averaged 5.5% since 2000, while per capita growth has increased to 3.5% currently. Population growth, major problem in Bangladesh, one of the most densely populated countries in the world, has fallen sharply from an annual average of 3% in 1970s to now 1.5% in 2000. The decline in population growth has been driven in large part by improvement in healthcare and empowerment of women. During the 1990s, the percentage of Bangladeshi mothers receiving prenatal healthcare doubled, partly as a result, infant mortality rates in Bangladesh fell almost by half by between 1990 and year 2005. Educational opportunities for children have also improved. The 1990s witnessed a tripling of the number of children attending secondary school. More girls now attend secondary school than boys, a feat unmatched in South Asia. 
and a remarkable achievement given the fact that in Bangladesh early of the early 1990s, there were three times as many boys as girls in secondary schools. The problems of poverty in Bangladesh, though improved, are far from being solved. Bangladesh is still one of the poorest countries in the world, with tens of millions of people living at a level barely above subsistence. But the social and economic trends are moving in the right direction. Despite all the obstacles and difficulties, Bangladesh has made great progress. If Bangladesh can do it, so can many other, many other countries. Bangladesh is a reason Bangladesh is the reason we, could, we should not abandon the Millennium Development Goals. If we go village by village, city by city, district by district, and country by country to achieve these goals, it can be done. I believe it can be done. We must all believe that it could be done. And hard work and a commitment to achieve them all. The thought that always energizes me is that poverty is not created by the poor people, as I said earlier. Poverty is an artificial imposition on the people. Poor people are endowed with same unlimited potential of creativity and energy that any human being in any station of life anywhere in the world. It is a question of removing barriers in front of the poor people to unleash their creativity to solve their problems. They can change their lives only if we give them the same opportunity that we get. Creatively designed social businesses in all sectors can make this unleashing happen in the fastest way. We are fortunate to have been born in an age of great ideas and great technologies. A lot will rely on our asking, ourself, asking ourselves the question, what use do we, make, do we want to make of our creative talents? And to our young friends again, do we want to focus exclusively on making money by using our talent? If you must do it, go ahead. But while making money through profit-maximizing businesses, do make sure that your businesses make positive impact in people's lives. At least it doesn't make any negative impact. Alternatively, you could use some of your, some or all of your talent to change the world by harnessing the power of creative, creative social businesses to address human and social needs. You can devote yourself exclusively to social businesses or do both types of businesses. Doing both is an attractive idea too. Making money through responsible profit-maximizing businesses could be the means while using that money for social businesses could be the exciting end. The solutions to many of our world's pressing problems could be accelerated through the creation of social businesses. I always insist that poverty does not belong to civilized society. Poverty belongs only in the museums where our children and grandchildren can go to see what misery people had to suffer and where, where, when they will ask how their ancestors allowed such a condition to persist for so long for so many people. You, the next generation, have to decide and declare that poverty no more. 
we overcame slavery. We overcame apartheid. We have done other things that people once thought impossible. We have put human beings on the surface of the moon. We put human beings into space to explore faraway worlds. We can, we can overcome poverty too, if only we decide that this does not belong to our world. And we want to create a world where there will be no poor person. It is up to your generation to decide the world that you choose to live in will not contain the scourge of poverty. We can do it. Let's do it. Thank you very much.